1: And he was afraid
0: it wouldn't work. And I still have memories of that period, where I knew I was onto something, but I also had fears that no one would like it. I had fears that I was I was moving so far outside of the taste game that was being played by so many other artists and and being consumed by the public. And so many nothing else was looking like this. My fear that it was just it was too beautiful. It was too decadent. It was too bombastic and that it wouldn't be embraced.
1: He was then doing a residency at the Studio Museum of Harlem and the influx of Harlem into his system. After years studying painting in Yale's MFA program and at the San Francisco Art Institute and years growing up in South Central L.A., all of that primed him to create a style that has helped him become one of the most successful visual artists of his generation. Certainly the most commercially successful black artist since Jean-Michel Basquiat. Kahende's style is a collision of old and new, of the old masters and hip-hop aesthetics, as if Just Blaze took a piece of Beethoven and made it funky. I've always felt like Cahende was painting black people into the overwhelmingly white history of art, and at the same time, giving us... A triumphant sort of blackness. His portraits ennoble his subjects. He makes them seem royal. They are winners. They are conquerors. They are the embodiment of style. And the paintings themselves have a sense of swagger. They're large and bold and flamboyant with ornate backgrounds that sometimes threaten to overtake the foreground, giving the painting a sense of movement in a way. At the time of this recording, is working on one of the paintings that he surely will be remembered for, the official portrait of President Barack Obama that will hang in the National Portrait Gallery. Clearly, Kahende's style has been fully embraced. This is Torre Show. I'm Toray. And on this show, I talk to successful people about their success and see what they know that can help the rest of us rise. I want to know what talents, tactics, and attitudes form the core of your success. I want to know how you got up your mountain and what we can learn from your journey. I always want these conversations to be valuable for you. I talked to rappers, actors, writers, directors, athletes, poker stars, and today, one of the most famous painters in the world. I had to sit down with Kehinde because he's had extraordinary success in a very difficult field, and I wanted to find out how he did it and what really drives him in
0: uh, my life i've always been obsessed with adulation
1: i wanted to know why he paints the way he does and how he deals with the art world and what it was like to work with kanye and with michael jackson
0: well i remember having conversations with michael about the uh, brushwork of rubens in his later paintings as opposed to his earlier works
1: i want to know How hard is it to run a global operation?
0: I remember being in the Congo and having a team of uh, filmmakers and sound boom guys and lights and generators, and we found this amazing small village that our fixer had taken us to. We got permissions from the elders. We were shooting. We had such an amazing time. And all of a sudden, here comes in the state police, and they round us all up, and we're thrown into a black site. We were in prison for the better part of five days.
1: I've known Kahende for a long time. He's a friend and we always have fun sitting over wine and arguing through ideas, so I knew this could be a great conversation. Unlike many great artists of the past, Kahende believes discussing his work in a clarifying way is an important part of being an artist.
0: The biggest aspect of selling yourself is to be able to communicate what your ideas are really about.
1: His confidence is massive and infectious. This is a man who is very happy about being in his skin, and it seems like he was always comfortable with himself.
0: Back when I was an undergrad, uh, the highest paying job on campus was the nude model. I was just out there letting it fly.
1: We met at his large apartment in Manhattan down in Soho, where the walls are filled with great art. His dogs, Sudan and Compton sat by us.
0: Compton, no. As we talked, about everything. My position in the art industrial complex, if you want to call it that, is one of uh, great conflict, I think. You know, so much of what I borrow from is art historical work that Mm -hmm. comes from Western European easel paintings, Mm -hmm. the positioning of the privileged white male body within uh, the painting space as portraiture, as display, as uh, wealth embodiment. And then how does that then look on... A black American male body. How does that performance look? Uh, many people are excited by it, but some people are absolutely horrified by it. I remember getting death threats in Texas where people were just really angry that this man was toying with the, the European traditions of portraiture.
1: It's really strange. It's kind of amazing that people would put so much worth in a 4 or 5 600-year-old painting that they did not make. Exactly. <laughs> and I must try I must send a death threat to right. a person who's like, "I want to remix that painting." Right. And and make it a little bit more for
0: me. Like, "How dare you?" Right. No, the re- death <laughs> to you. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. I mean, that's the that's the that's the DNA of American culture is remix culture. I mean, when Elvis is borrowing from early American blues and rhythm and blues, there that sort of a uh, quote top down method of cultural appropriation is completely acceptable right i i, I come from the much more uh, blues and jazz tradition of accepting all cultural output as belonging to me mm. and uh, rife for potential ex- uh, exploration and so i know that i stand on the shoulders of many who come before And I want to use the anxiety of influence, the the anxiety of, well, how can I, with all of these great masters behind me, create an authentic message or voice? And I I decided very early on, it's the anxiety that is your subject matter. Hmm. It's the desire to create something authentic and new and that insecurity surrounding authenticity that is the subject matter.
1: Yeah. All right, let's go back to sort of the beginning of... Kahende, and you've you've talked a lot about your mom putting you in the art program when you're very young. But beyond that, right? Because to me, the beginning is the skill acquisition part, right? When you learn how to paint at a very high level before you even get to Yale and layer on the political ramifications of your painting. So talk a little bit about acquiring the skill to where you were extraordinary and uh, you know, could be
0: a great painter? Well, that's a good question. I think that um, in uh, my life, I've always been obsessed with adulation. And back when I was a little kid and I could make drawings that impress other little kids, making uh, a, a facsimile or an approximation of how a car looks like a car really uh, got me going. And it was only later that I realized that there was a hierarchy in, in contemporary art. Uh, and I think this happens uh, in art history in Europe. before, Even before the post-war American stuff starts to happen, there's this bifurcation between uh, representational space, a realistic painting, we can call it, and uh, what the camera can do. The camera changes the art game. Insofar as art was once the sole propriety of reality in two-dimensional space the camera shatters that and so we we start to then privilege less the ability to make something representational and we start to really sort of privilege the exploration process itself painting starts to become about paint Painting starts to become about ideation and about the, the pure idea, conceptual work starts to happen. Fast forward through some of the changes that happen in America as art moves to these shores, and we start talking about culture and the way that art sort of reflects the world we live in. By the time you catch me in the 1980s in South Central Los Angeles, I'm not thinking about any of that. I just simply want to make something look as it is. And it was only later that I went on to uh, take... My studies in San Francisco Art Institute and later at Yale, where I sort of fused these twin desires, the desire to communicate something actual about the world and the desire to explore this first love, uh, Western European easel painting.
1: Reading through your history, I feel like Yale was very important for you in terms of finding your voice and figuring out some of who you would become. But then when you land in Harlem and you start making the paintings that you were making there, finding people in the street and painting them, that you really start to lock in on your voice. Can you talk about finding your voice through Yale and then refining it when you get to Harlem and the Studio Museum of Harlem?
0: Well, Yale is one of the most celebrated MFA programs in the world. And if you look at some of the most celebrated artists on the scene right now, you'll find that Yale plays a disproportionate role there. And I think part of their success is that it's baptismal by fire. You think you walk into the program with a set of successes and talents and strengths, and their job is to sort of tear you down systematically. And your job is to sort of use all of the uh, tools that they provide to create a new self. And that new self was in many ways uh, based upon less of the figure, which is what I came in with, and more on pure idea, uh, theory, uh, understanding uh, in terms of structure how certain ideas have arrived and, and collide. By the time I got out of Yale, I was just so sick and tired of being in the mind. I wanted to be in the streets. I wanted something actual. I wanted something visceral. I grew up in Los Angeles, a very car-driven culture, and I arrived in Harlem, a very different Harlem then, this is pre 11 where you would go on 125th Street and you would see young black and brown couples parading and peacocking down yeah. 125th Street. That sense of performance of self, that it was just very sexy and visceral. And I, I just remember um, being out and walking a lot and, and wanting to, to engage this new... Blackness, this new America, so different from the one that I grew up in, in a very direct way. So I literally would just stop complete strangers in the street and invite them to my studio, which I, you know by then I was the artist in residence at the Studio Museum in Harlem, and so I had a, stu- a modest studio space upstairs in the museum, and I would have these completely confused, uh, uh, beautiful, young black people in my studio wondering why I would spend so much time on something so, you know, in many ways decadent, There's this sense of, like, portraiture as being something uh, perhaps alien or foreign, which is, I think, a, a really refreshing way of re-engaging portraiture. Was it became a new doorway to access it. So very innocently, people started asking about the art history books on my shelves. They wanted to know, uh, uh, you know, who was this person? Who was that person? We would actually go through these books, and I started asking people, "Well, if you were, which one of these paintings do you think you would want to see yourself in?" And it was a very, it was very conversational in the beginning, and
1: it sounds very organic. That's right.
0: Not Candy comes up with a game and
1: then finds players to play in it, but just organically through the conversation, it just developed.
0: Well. That's the way all art works in a, in a weird way. You know, in, in art school, we spill a bit of paint. We call it a happy accident, and you have to sort of roll with that. You have to roll with that uh, that that sense of the irrational. What, uh, what I decided was that these paintings were starting to look interesting and that there was something there. Now, what is it? And so, you know, then you start talking to your peers and start talking about... Uh, this strange rubbing that's going on between the past and the present, that sort of rip that occurs between the sacred and the profane, who deserves to be on museum walls, that sort of outside in, all of those ideas start to become additive on top of something that was really quite organic.
1: I mean, this moment is critical for you. You're finding your voice, right? You are defining the Cahende
0: visual brand. It, it felt pregnant. It felt... Alive. It felt like I was really, and I still have memories of that period where um, I knew I was onto something, but I also had fears that no one would like it. I had fears that I was, I was moving so far outside of the taste game that was being played by so many other artists and, and being consumed by the public and so many, nothing else was looking like this. My fear that it was just, it was too beautiful, it was too decadent, it was too bombastic, And that it wouldn't be embraced. So if you thought no one would like it, why did you keep doing it? Well, I never assumed that I would be successful to begin with. I just wanted to satisfy this itch that I had. I was was scratching this itch. I, uh, very early on in San Francisco, took extension courses in culinary arts, knowing that I would probably need a day job to support my art habits. I ignored my student loan debt and destroyed my credit very early on when I was a kid, <laughs> straight out of school, because I just assumed I would never in a million years pay back this stuff. So fuck it, you know, just go with what works for me. And that aesthetic sense, that, that deep personal uh, vein that I was tapping uh, became a type of mining. I was, I was mining the interiors of my own desire, and I think the, what the world responded to when I first had my exhibition at the Studio Museum in Harlem and the New York Times responded glowingly and then the galleries start coming and the museums start coming and and and, and so forth, was a, it was a reaction to a type of authenticity that was completely fearless.
1: We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door, thanks to DoorDash. If you don't wanna do the dishes or you feel a little sick, it's definitely a fearlessness and a freedom to go in a direction that your conscious mind is like, this is not going to work. But your subconscious perhaps is saying, but this is what I like. And that, that making that choice for an artist is so valuable.
0: Yeah, I mean, people often ask me for advice on, on how they can proceed as, as artists, and I have nothing to say except for that. Uh, I except, think for except for go for, your, except for try to try to learn as much as you can, try to stack your mind with as much history and theory as you can, and then proceed as th- as though you never read it, and just respond to the world in a very authentic personal way, and it'll make sense to you in the end, and you'll start to recognize patterns within patterns, and it'll start to become self reflective and reflective, um, but in the end, it's 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 really about allowing yourself to go into a space of absolute improvisation.
1: You touched on some of how you move forward there in terms of here's finding my voice, right? Here's trusting my voice um, and doing that in the street and deep internal work. And then you said, you put out the show and that was at the Studio Museum of Harlem. The Times responded which in the Times is the one that the, from the establishment that's going to a- a knight you or whatever, and then the industry responds. Talk about what that moment was like going from, I don't think this is going to work, but this is what I love, so I'm going to just put out what I love, and then one by one the world starts, you know, the dominoes start to fall,
0: and the, thing, the ball starts to mm-hmm. come your way. Well, it happened so quickly that I was completely unprepared. No one prepares you in art school to think about the marketplace. No one prepares you to think about uh, the right gallery to go with when many are approaching you or how to begin to uh, organize and manage a studio process. All of that had to be learned on the fly. And it was extremely quick and a sort of meteoric rise and... I made some mistakes, obviously. I mean, that there's uh, just a sense that you you just have to deal with it. Uh, one of the great things, though, is that I was part of a community of artists. I was coming out of Yale that wonderful year where I was uh, also a student there with Mickalene Thomas. I was there with Iona Brown. I was there with uh, Wangechi Mutu. Um, we were sort of this this young tribe of, of, of thinkers trying to figure out the world together. And so we had, we had each other. We had that sense of like, uh, discourse and, 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 and performance out there.
1: And you had your friends, but you fairly quickly built a business. And talk about how you rapidly constructed a business around the interest in the voice
0: that you had created. Well, uh, there's just certain material realities to painting. I need stretchers. Uh, stretchers are uh, incredibly cumbersome and difficult to build, so you have to figure out where you're going to build them. Uh, you need canvas for those stretchers. You need gesso. You need, uh, uh, in some of the earlier paintings, I remember painting uh, you know, at least 100,000 individual minute sperm cells on each, on each surface. And so then you need studio assistants to help you to sort of like create these little things. Um, and I noticed that other artists within uh, my group had studio assistants, and I was like, oh, well, that's a thing. Okay, so let's, let's try to figure that out. And then, of course, because there was an interest from the galleries, there was help. So now there was funding for a muscular studio practice where I can then start to expand. Um, I... I made shows in America and really enjoyed that process, but very quickly I began to realize that if I was going to keep my sanity, I need to get away from New York and sort of find different fields of providence. I ran uh, to Beijing at the invitation of a friend who was consequently an airline stewardess and an artist, and she said, you should check out this scene. It's amazing. You can get a studio here for next to nothing, and The blackness that you occupy out there is going to be completely different than the one that exists in America. You should check it out. And I was just fascinated. So I did. Took a couple trips. Decided to actually open a studio there. Um, Fell in love. Had a relationship there. Dogs. A house. Uh, I'm currently uh, uh, working in in Senegal and Dakar on a space in West Africa where uh, there's a different type of blackness that exists and a different history in a different space. Um, that sense of the global is something that's really important for me and it's something that allows me to get outside of uh, my own uh, set of assumptions about myself or about gender, or queerness or blackness or what have you and to sort of see myself from a different angle. Um, and it's, it's something that I want other artists to to explore as well it's sort of a response to the studio museum in harlem's auspices i've decided to expand my studio in dakar to become a visit an artist in residence space for visiting artists who will now have west africa as a space where they they too can sort of come to terms with themselves in this beautiful part of the world
1: so studio in beijing studio in dakar and is there another there's stu- a
0: studio in williamsburg brooklyn and and is there more than that yeah, just the three globally. There's the three, and then, of course, there's small workshops where I do other things uh, here and there. And so the, I mean, the notion of this global business that allows you to create, it's, it's extraordinary. I don't think about it as a business. I just think about it as like the remains of the day when you think about my life. You know, this is, I, I'm, I'm, the way that I'm talking to you is in a very sort of autobiographical way. There was never any step where I said, well, I'm going to design a system or that I had it all figured out. Uh, It does turn out consequently that the the studio practice that I currently have exists in direct relationship to the type of globalization and interconnectivity that the world is experiencing. And as I consider that more often, I'm able to create work that responds to the physical reality of my global presence. And so I feel incredibly emboldened to use my history, to to look at the very African-American aesthetic sense, let's say hip-hop being beamed into Tel Aviv. All right, so I fly to Tel Aviv and I meet with uh, Ethiopian Jews who are uh, working on uh, telling their own stories through the voice or through... In the drag of American hip hop, um, and you start to realize that this, this type of thing is happening all over the world. The leading edge of American cultural diplomacy is hip hop. Mm-hmm. It starts in the '70s in the Bronx. It starts to become this thing that people assume will go away soon, but then it goes viral, and people realize, much like they had with reggae, that it's a very wonderful tool for allowing the voice of of anyone to come through. But more, 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 more. Direct to the point, it's the the voice of those who exist on the peripheries to come to the fore. So it's in the same way that hip-hop comes out of the sort of jazz tradition and the improvisational literature of the street tradition, my work responds in that same kind of improvisational way. I'm deciding to go to places that I don't know very much about, trying my best to sort of learn their histories on the fly and respond to the America that I come from. What I'm doing in the end is certainly pointing outwards and talking about the world, but I'm also creating a type of self-portraiture. People ask me often, do I paint myself? And I say, "In, uh, in in an actual way, no, but I think if you consider my work as in its totality, what you start to see are the contours of my existence in this world, the contours of the type of people that I find beautiful in the streets, the contours of the type of histories that turn me on or the types of spaces that I consider to be interesting. I
1: mean, your work is extraordinary and the people in them are always really fascinating, interesting, but I quite often find myself truly blown away by the backgrounds and you're always very decorative and ornate and complex in the background and even sometimes the background is literally overtaking the foreground in some ways and... um, what, what is that gesture to put so much energy and thought and complexity uh, in the backgrounds?
0: I think um, having spent so much time looking at traditional portraiture coming out of the 17th and 18th century French and British traditions, I started to realize that there were certain patterns within the depiction of the self. Generally, it was uh, landed gentry, entitled men, who would have themselves positioned in the landscape, and they would be dominant and forefront. And generally there would be cattle, landscape, woman, child, uh, in quotation, possessions Mm -hmm. behind them. Mm -hmm. The landscape art historically has always functioned as a timeline. The present tense is in the foreground. The past tense goes on into the horizon. In my work, I decided to sort of deconstruct all of those uh, assumed truths, I decided to flatten everything out into a type of two-dimensional field that becomes the decorative. If the pose that a model selects comes from the late French rococo, I began creating these late French rococo filigrees behind the the model. Um, And I, I found it kind of fascinating to start thinking about that background contending for the foreground, wanting to sort of insist itself upon the present tense wanting to come forward in, in, a, in a strange sort of metaphorical way, it becomes a stand-in for the painting itself, mm-hmm. a desire for visibility, a desire for uh, presence.
1: See, now you remind me, you take me back to I wanted adulation. I, I am clear within myself that this is something that I want. So the background itself is going, hey, look at me, look at me, look at me.
0: And don't just look at him, look at me. Everyone's doing that the the people in the original European paintings were doing it the loudest and the most profoundly. I mean, if you want to talk about bling, these paintings were in these gold-leaved uh, ornate frames. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I early on began framing my work that way. Uh, the body language was one of domination. I remember uh, doing a show called Rumors of War where I wanted to respond to the first Gulf War and to create uh, paintings about war. And if you look at the sweet spot in Western European easel painting for war, equestrian portraiture is where it lies. And so I made this amazing collection of equestrian portraits, but I realized that as I was trying to hire Hollywood horses, because real horses would sort of go crazy with the flashes going on in the Mm -hmm. studio, um, and, and placing my models on these horses, I realized that the ratio of human being to animal had been completely changed in the original European works. Turns out that they made the man look so much bigger on the horse. And so I actually had to start using Photoshop to create the illusion of domination that was happening in, let's say, a David or an Angra painting. And it was absolutely insightful in terms of what, what the mechanics were and, and actually, what was trying to be communicated, this type, this type of self-glorification, I mean, Biggie ain't got nothing on this. This is, <laughs> this is going to the point of just like, I'm so powerful that my pinky is held out, and I'm controlling this wild beast while looking completely calm as the sky is thunderous and people are being murdered and hacked behind me. <laughs> if you want to talk about high drama, this is where it lies.
1: <laughs> you know, one thing about you is you are filled with confidence, right? You know you are the shit, and I, that comes out in the paintings, that comes out in the room when you're doing your thing, either on a one-on-one moment or you're doing your, your your you know, Kende release party, and, you know, the big man comes out, and yes, and you're wearing your suits with the image of yourself on the inside. How far back does that
0: go? Is that something that you earned or is that something you walked into the game with? I just think that um, ego has to be embraced. I think if you look at what I was just talking about, the ego is the subject matter. The ego has always, art historically, been the terms of the game from its, from its inception. If we look at art historically, some of the, 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 the presence of the ego, it starts with the church as they were the original... Uh, patrons of the art and then it, as secularization starts to move in it goes into the state where uh, uh, political uh, uh, jockeying for power is is there and then as the merchant class starts to emerge it, it goes into uh, the individual portrait with me I've always been very um, confident and comfortable with that language of the ego and I've always been in a sort of trickster-like fashion, been playing with that language, not only in terms of the work that I do uh, in in painting, but in the celebration of those paintings. And so if you want to have an opening party for a show, let's really use the language of celebration in a very chest-beating way. Let's use uh, theatricality in the same way that it was used in Europe uh, uh, in the, the, the 18th century, let's say. All I'm simply doing is using the language of the dominant culture uh, and oftentimes uh, being criticized for it.
1: Uh, you you know, one of the things I love about hip-hop is that I feel like it's a group of self-crowned kings, right? Like a really great MC walks in the game like, y'all, I know y'all know I'm the shit. Well, how do we know you're the Because I decided I'm the shit. All right, well, there it is. And you're like that. Like, I decided I'm the shit and nothing against you. It's not that you're better than the next person. It's that you think a lot of yourself. And having that fire inside, I think is really critical for a lot of us, especially those of us who have the culture
0: telling us you ain't shit. You know what I mean? No, I get it, I get it. And you, you I mean, in order to make it in the, in the art business, you definitely have to have, as I said on the, in, in the inception of this conversation, and ability to deal with uh, the unknown and and a type of uh, a compass inside to tell you where your true north is. My sense of play, my sense of discovery has always been um, ironic. There's always been a sense of, of uh, uh, an engagement with ego and history at arm's length. And I think it's easy to sort of get confused with the performance of Kehende and, and the person who actually embodies this, this brown body. I think there's oftentimes, if you look at my work, a lot of insecurity. Mm. I think the the late motif that many people often miss is the sense of the pathetic or the insecure. The the body of work that I think points to this most is called Down. And it was a series of paintings that were epic in scale. They were chest-beating in terms of their, their, their largesse. But they were images of fallen men. They were images of the dead Christ. They were images of the fallen soldier. It was the, the absolute uh, inverse of the apotheosis. It was that space where uh, the pathetic starts to become the heroic, where something is so full of life that it starts to sort of decay underneath its own weight. And I think that conflict between uh, a sense of self-confidence and uh, what we all know undergirds every human life, which is the fear of failure and the fear of, of, of falling, a, t- a type of aesthetic vertigo or a personal sense of, uh, of, of uh, the lack of control, is a very delicate balance that can oftentimes lead to some really beautiful insights. At its best, what I try to do is flirt with proficiency and and being completely lost. I, what I try to do...
1: What does eating healthy mean to you? dot T-h-r-i-v-e slash thrivemarket.com slash
0: On March 16th, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alameen, a Muslim leader and former black power activist was convicted, but the evidence was shaky and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret. And when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Just know that I can paint my ass off, but throw myself into places where I don't know exactly how I'm going to navigate this space, how I'm going to navigate, navigate this history, and how I'm going to sort of position myself around it. So it's... I guess what I'm trying to say is that um, it's a little bit more of a performance that points to much more than uh, you might believe is actually on the surface of the performance.
1: Yeah, how do you, how does, how do you sell yourself
0: to the art world? See, I, I, don't, I don't sell myself to the art world. I think that... Um, um, is there not a game that has to be played beyond just the painting? Well, there's there's stuff that you're sort of obligated to do. There's parties that you have to go to. There's people that you have to meet. But really, they're just people. You know, it's a room full of... It's almost the same way that um, uh, statecraft happens. We think about these things as large abstractions, but, you know, Merkel is a person. Obama is a person. Sadly, Trump is something like that. <laughs> um, and these people build relationships and they, and they uh, uh, craft ideas that, that interest their constituencies, but they also respond to, pe- to themselves and people as, as, as individuals. I think the art world is, is somehow the same. It's about um, being in the right rooms at the, at the right time. Obviously, there's thousands of talented people, but they may not have access to the same rooms and the same people and the mechanisms of power that give rise to those great careers. And I'm no idiot. I, I knew that I would have to be in New York City, for example, rather than Detroit in order to make it. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I would have to sort of figure out the best way to talk about my work so that people will actually understand it. But I've, I've always been very good at understanding myself and, 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 and analyzing what my intentions are. And so insofar as I was able to sort of like uh, sell myself the biggest aspect of selling yourself is to be able to communicate what your ideas are really about mm-hmm. and to be able to be an ambassador for your work. And that's something I'm incredibly proud of. I'm incredibly proud of the ability with which I've been able to not only uh, uh, allow for a type of freedom and, and, and uh, growth to happen with my ideas, but also a type of introspection that allows me to to, to communicate uh, what my ideas are. So much of what people have expected of artists is that that they're uh, unable to communicate their best ideas, and we need critics and and authors to to bring those ideas to the fore. I think that's complete bullshit. We've believed in this romantic notion of the artist who's in the cave, who uh, sits in the darkness and emerges with his magnum opus, his confession, yet he doesn't know how to communicate it. And I think we've done away with that, with this new generation of artists that I certainly belong to. I love the fact that when I speak to uh, my peers, now they're very succinct and very clear about what their ideas are and, and, and how they're operating within the world. And I think that is, that, is the, that is the game, if you want to talk about what the game is. The game is knowing truly what what your core interests are, knowing truly what turns you on aesthetically and personally, and knowing how that interfaces with the realities of the art marketplace.
1: I mean, that's such an incredibly important point. And I think about growing up and the caricature of the artist was that he was brilliant, that he made some work, and then you would get gibberish from him. And I think perhaps that a lot of that is... Andy Warhol, that, you know, and, and the artifice was part of it, right? The gibberish was part of the act.
0: There is something of a kind of privilege that Warhol occupied. There's a type of privilege to a lot of, well, let's face it, male, uh, white artists who can sort of play this, what I call the low-cool game of murmuring, and that the world would accept... Everything that they drop as being brilliant and and being imbibed with with a, a, a sort of uh, brilliance in and of itself. I, my struggle is to have people accept that type of complexity on a black body. It's not. It doesn't come natural naturally based on the history of this nation. We don't look at black bodies as fully encoded texts with complexity and and autonomy and individuality. We look at my paintings, many people look at my paintings as types of people rather than individuals. Whereas if you look at, say, a John Curran or a Lisa Yuskavage painting, you assume a level of complexity. Who is that individual? What is this painting about? We start to talk about status anxiety. We start to talk about histories. We talk to, Whereas I myself have to go out and communicate the complexity of the work because so many people want to make this sort of two-dimensional caricature of who these people are. I've literally had people tell me, so tell me about the rappers in your painting. And it's just some of the most uh, dehumanizing mm-hmm. and, and, and flattening uh, pressures that we have to deal with as artists. That said, it allows you to interface with yourself and with your process a little bit more uh, uh, in depth. And so in that sense, it becomes a kind of blessing and a curse Where as the dominant cultural uh, uh, urge is to go into this sort of murmuring, uh, I don't know, I'm sort of going off into an ethereal space, I actually have to go in and in real terms examine and communicate exactly what it is that I'm thinking about and what those urges are. There are spaces in my work that are irrational and, and there are spaces in my work that are ineffable and that I can't quite put down in terms of word or ideation and I think that at its best the work sort of occupies this space that is completely understandable from someone who understands the entire history of art and has a very strong understanding of conceptual arguments and also the young kid off the street who just wants to walk into the museum and sees someone who looks like him or her and is just wowed by that reality. There's those sort of two different access points. It's very exciting about the work for many people. But then I I would argue that there's this third space that comes out of fear, that comes out of the irrational, that comes out of dread, self-loathing, that often gets ignored. And I think that's the elephant in the living room. Can you talk about
1: the mistakes that you have made that you have most profited from, that you have learned and grown from, the mistakes that helped you.
0: Well when you think about when I think about mistakes as, as a painter, I just think about color. I think about like just horrible combinations that, that just would not work at all, but that when come together just seem sort of delightful in a strange way. Mm. So much about the material practice of painting is actually just knowing how to take primary colors and make them into tertiary and move on from there and just the mixing and, and, and the intuitive sense of how things will play together. In painting skin, for example, when we, look about, when we look at and think about black and brown skins, we assume that they're going to be those colors, but there are blues in there. There's greens and reds, and there's, there's a type of complexity in there, and oftentimes I'll make mistakes, but those will lead to breakthroughs in terms of the way that you de- de- depict the black body. A makeup artist once told
1: me a black makeup artist once told me that there are more colors in a black face than there tend to be in a white face. There's more That's variations. That's not true at all.
0: That's absolutely not true. No? I, I studied, in fact, this is a funny story, uh, back when I was an undergrad, uh, the highest paying job on campus was the nude model. And so I was all about it. I didn't care that my friends were in the class I was just out there letting it fly, take it off, and paint me. But in the end, what it what it um, is indicative of is the fact that I was in a school where you could study the live nude body and learn how to paint based in based on the body in front of you. And there is a complexity to white skin. Uh, the question is, which white skin? Is it tanned? Is it is it uh, ginger? Is it Blonde. there there's just so many different uh levels of 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 color there and and of, of course of the light that that hits the body and how uh, if the light comes from behind is the blood is the blood seen in the ear or in the nostril there's there's complexity in all of us and i and I urge against this uh desire to place any range of color i think Painting itself is the most democratizing act of all. It, it doesn't care what your skin color is. If you're a painter and your job is to create the most realistic depiction of a human body, it, beca- it becomes a person, it becomes a body, and it becomes just as hard to paint the white body as it does to, to paint the black body. In fact, argue, argumentatively, you can say that I'm best at painting white bodies because that's what I was breastfed on. That's the, those are the bodies that were in my live drawing classes. I was the only black model in those classes. And so there is no history. There is no tradition of knowing how to, to create or craft the black body in painting space. And that's what's just so fascinating. It's, a, it's, it's an, an eternal learning process about how to mix color, how to respond to light, uh, how to explore the world. Uh, one of the things that I love about having a studio in Senegal is the... the the intensity of of blackness that exists, and the range of blacknesses mm-hmm. from absolute blue blacks to to the uh, mixed uh, couples and their children—it's it's absolutely fascinating. So, okay, uh, I, I, I want to drill down on this notion again.
1: A failure mm-hmm. that you benefited that you benefited from—you
0: know—you don't know everything. You you can try to prepare for a lot, and you can. Uh, do due diligence and send advanced teams and all of this. I remember being in the Congo and having a team of uh, filmmakers and sound boom guys and lights and generators, and we found this amazing small village that our fixer had taken us to. We got permissions from the elders. We were shooting. We had such an amazing time. And all of a sudden, here comes in the state police, and they round us all up, and we're thrown into a black site. We were in prison for the better part of five days. What year it was this? It turns out that it was the national elections. When was this? This was six years ago, I believe. And you were in jail I was, for five days? I was in jail uh, for five days. And we were basically uh, su- suspected of trying to affect their elections. Oh, wow. And you know, talk about a complete failure of perception. We didn't think about the optics, foreigners, white people, cameras, sound booms, money to young people on the day of the elections. Mm -hmm. Of course, your your ass is going to get thrown in jail. And so, you know, we obviously um, figured out a way to bribe the guards and get our phones and call the State Department. And and so we, you know, we were we were out. But it's 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 amazing how. The best laid intentions can sometimes lead to failure, Um, yet an amazing show came out of it. One of your highlights, at least for us as
1: viewers, uh, is the Michael Jackson Mm. portrait, which is extraordinary. Talk about that whole situation of... I know you get the call from Michael, you didn't believe it, you hung up on him, he calls back, and... I mean, was there a moment when you were sitting with him and photographing
0: him for the portrait you would eventually do? So this is the most crazy uh, episode where Michael Jackson's, uh, you know, about a year before his death, was doing the Ebony Magazine shoot. Very few people know that that shoot took place at the Brooklyn Museum. And so he's in the Brooklyn Museum after the shoot, walking by... uh, what has become one of my most well-known paintings of Napoleon crossing the Alps. Mm. And he wants to know who this guy is and he wants to engage a conversation. Unbeknownst to me, of course. And and so I did did reject the call. I didn't assume that Michael Jackson was going to be calling. And of course, the person who was his assistant at the time, his name was Brother Michael. So Brother Michael calling for Michael Jackson. It just sounded very odd. I ignored it. And then finally, a mutual friend said, no, Michael's trying to call. You pick up the phone. And when I did, we set up a, a series of uh, conversations. We were working by proxy. Uh, the conversations with Michael would happen as he was going from hotel room to hotel room all across the world. We were sending him uh, art history books to look at examples of pre existing Western European paintings. And he was knowledgeable in this area. Well, he was extremely knowledgeable. I remember having conversations with Michael about the brushwork of Rubens in his later paintings as opposed to his earlier works and just the the things that we would assume of the public figures or people uh, like him uh, that exist underneath the surface it's it's, it's absolutely uh, fascinating but one of the things that I really loved about that process is the conversation about fashion and about what he should wear and ultimately we decided upon armor we're talking about how Fashion both communicates something, but also keeps the world out. We we're also talking about him and his career and the sense in which he had created this blast zone for himself, this kind of war on the outside, war on the inside. And it's, a, it's, it's easily one of my favorite paintings because of that kind of collaborative thing. I rarely do uh, commissioned work, but when Michael calls, you respond.
1: Uh, talk, I mean, talk about the day. Was it a day that you were with him? photographing him or you were never in the same room for
0: this no this was all this very strange process of phone calls fedex phone call fedex i got those pictures they were amazing what do you think about them and 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 it was it was incredibly um intimate uh, i think because it was the, it was uh, it was a distance. There was a distance and a presence at once. It was a shame that he never got a chance to see it. But it, it is an extraordinary uh, object and a testament to his will. Uh, and it's the last commissioned portrait of Michael Jackson. And you did it. Is there a Kanye portrait? Mm-hmm. I've I've heard that there is, but I have never seen it. Yeah, there was there was a project that we were working on that that never quite. Uh, came to fruition so there's like some studies and stuff out there who do you want to paint who you have not been able to um grace jones i actually got her to say yes uh i've been stalking her for a number of years uh set up a meeting and she loved the work and she said yes and then and then she said no and then she said yes again. And so she's just one of those people who's worked with so many artists. I don't know if you've seen some of the work that she's done with uh, Goud or with Herring, at uh, all. Um, but I would love, she's, she's just one of those muses that you want to sort of add your, uh, your touch to. I think that in terms of the depictions of her or the, the interventions that have happened around her image, people have not been able to get to her body in painting space and that's something i i feel like i could bring to the table Mm. in terms of like the depiction of black skin in oil painting Mm. what are your mornings like do you have a routine i don't know in fact one of the things that i love about being an artist is that you can wake up anytime you want and get and go to work and paint at night or paint during the day um there are certain just you know uh, logistical things. There's meetings that I have to attend with my galleries and with you know other people and stuff like that. You just have to kind of have to do that kind of housekeeping stuff. But in terms of the painting side, no, it's 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 wide open. Do you paint every day? I paint when I can. Uh, oftentimes the the logistical stuff will take up an entire day. So like that's that. The that fame day is, is out. getting in the way of the painting. I wouldn't say it's fame. I would just say it's just you know. You got to figure out how to pay the bills or, or figure out how to uh, manage shipping of something or, or dealing with construction in Senegal or dealing with... There's just so many different things that will just pull you away from uh, the task at hand.
1: So there's not... Is there a time... I want to paint from one to four... No, it doesn't exist. ...whenever I can get to the studio.
0: I like painting at in in the day uh, I miss painting at night there was a point early in my career where I couldn't afford a separate space for a studio and so I would live where I paint and that was sort of amazing and terrible at once because you get the time to sort of work uh, as again anytime you want but then you'll be at home on your downtime staring at your mistakes <laughs> <laughs> and you want to get up and try to fix it and, it and it becomes something where if you overwork a painting it starts to get away from you. There's a type of freshness that you want to maintain and um, you, can, you can kill a lot of work by overthinking it. Do you want it to be quiet in the studio? Or do you want music? I constantly have audio books on uh, as I paint. Um, I have there's something great about painting because um, you don't want to think about it too much. You want to sort of get in there and respond naturally to color. And if you've been painting as long as I have, this this type of sort of muscle memory and, and delight comes outside of this kind of concentrating space. And so in a strange way, you can empty yourself out by putting on, you know, uh, a, a great novel or something like this. Um, it's one of the reasons why um, I'm as well-read as I am is because I can... for hours and hours at a time uh, try out something new or explore something different. Um, My fantasy is to be able to have Audible.com go into spaces that aren't so necessarily trodden, but um, perhaps we can commission a a kind of artist studio edition of audiobooks. Do you have have rules for
1: when you're there, like you know, there's no phone, you know, assistant, don't bother me, you know, unless the apartment's burning down. Like, like, are there rules
0: like that? Yeah, I mean, my, my studio is very calm and tranquil. I mean, there's generally, you know, going to be some other people working on, you know, the, the flowers or some background or something like this. But they've also got their earbuds in, you know, and the office is way on the other side of the studio and they're doing what they need to do. I think... um Painting is quite boring to look at when uh, people come to the studio. They think there's going to be something exciting to see, but it's incredibly slow and painstaking and and, uh, contemplative.
1: (laughs) I mean, you know, that's to you. I mean, like, you know, when I was in your studio space, it was just thrilling, and your joy uh, was, was palpable. I mean, I remember you talking about the sort of paint, and you were like, this is the Rolls-Royce of paint. Oh, yeah. Like, what does yeah. like, what,
0: what this do differently? You're like, oh, this is, this is, load, this yeah. is the real shit. Yeah. No, I, I love painting. I love getting in there and, and trying to figure out something new with the materials and trying to push the type of mediums that are being used. You know, the perception here is that um, I don't paint at all and that, you know, everything is sort of studio assistance in all of this, which has gotten really sort of... Um, out of hand sometimes I really don't understand it because it seems that every one of my friends has studio assistants and every major artist that I know has them but for some reason and I think it has to do with the type of painting that I do and 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 the black bodies who are in those paintings that it's there's like this kind of pushback or this resistance to the the romantic idea of the artist alone in the studio which never existed by the way I mean if you go back to uh, Rembrandt. Like, everyone has this sort of traditional studio practice where you concentrate on the portrait, and there's uh, assistance to sort of work with other things. But I think within I think within popular culture with the, we have this idea that the artist sort of does that a, a, on his own. Um, but no, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely obsessed and fascinated with the material practice of painting.
1: It seems that it bothers you that people are like, he doesn't really paint the stuff.
0: Well, I mean, it's it's just something that i'm incredibly proud of and it's something that uh i've spent my life doing so if if someone looks at my life's work and says well he didn't do that you know that that certainly should bother anyone but at the same time it he didn't do all of it it's a team sport and so you know you can't create these sort of epic bigger than life 25 foot uh paintings with perfectly done little petals of tiny spindles and roses every uh, square inch without having a team of assistants to work on those things that don't require your hand. And so in that sense, um, I just want clarity. I want like for people to understand the reality of, of what it means to create this type of epic work. Can we talk about your
1: father and going to find him? hmm So,
0: yeah, you, you go to find him, to beat him, you do. Well, let's back up. In order to talk about my father, in order to talk about my uh, life as an African American, you have to realize that my father is from Nigeria and my mother's from Texas, so I'm literally an African American. My mother and father meet in California at university, and my father returns before my birth to Nigeria, whereupon he stays and we never see him. There's no photographs, there's no address, there's there's no sign of him. And so I grew up in America as an African-American. My understanding of myself is from a very sort of African-American point of view. But there there was a point when I was 19 years old that I decided to get on a plane and find my father. I had all of $700 with me. I knew his first and last name and what he studied in university. And I found him. It, it, It took me a while, but I started first by going from architecture department to architecture department, which is what he studied, assuming there would be a community of architects who would point me in the right way, didn't work. What did work was someone told me, why don't you go with his last name? Go to the region of Nigeria where that last name comes from. And I did it, went to the largest university in that area, and his name was on the door of the architecture department. He ran the department. And so... uh, all these years later, I now have this uh, different understanding of Africa, a much more personal relationship with Africa. Uh, and now I've actually known uh, Africa, I'm 40 now, and I went there in 19, longer than I've not known. Right. Uh, and so it's it's a really opportune time right now to work in Africa to explore its multiplicity and to to show the world some of the things that I've discovered about the the place uh, that perhaps is less known. One of the important things that is happening right now is that these cities, these urban spaces and the possibilities for this very cosmopolitan culture or Afropolitan as they call it, Mm -hmm. culture that's starting to pop up all over the place um, is existing in direct relationship to the Western ignorance of it. China's figured it out. You go to China and they're everywhere and they're building and investing, but that's also a kind of feeding relationship. The Africans themselves, and I hate to make a sort of monolithic African type, but many of the the spots and the sites that I've been throughout, uh, West Africans in in particular, um, occupy um, uh, both a state of growth and a state of um, uh, profound history. And the young people are both engaged with the West and with Europe and, and with the East. And they're, and they're fashioning new identities that are completely uh, exciting and fascinating and, and, and morphing. I want to be part of that conversation, and that's one of the reasons why I've instituted this studio, so that young artists from the West can start to have some of their most foundational moments happening in, 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 in West Africa.
1: So when you finally find your dad, Mm -hmm. from what I've read, the meeting was not really what you wanted, right? And it knocked you down some. And the question is, how did it knock you down and how did you get back up and propel upward
0: after that? Well, when I finally found my father, it wasn't the sort of romantic uh, Oprah episode that you would have expected. He was incredibly shocked and nervous and unprepared for this moment. And it came out of nowhere. Uh, And I wanted to have that kind of embrace. I wanted to be accepted immediately. And it took him time. It took him time to sort of really uh, understand what was going on. And and, um, it threw me into a type of depression. It threw me into a sense of just like spiritual exhaustion So that type of like exhaustion that I was experiencing was very difficult to get over and it just was a matter of time and and placing things within perspective. And and I think having a a level of empathy, placing myself in my father's shoes, but that's a really hard thing to do when um, there's so much hurt and blame and expectations and absence really. One of the things that was just so satisfying about it, though, was just to finally know what he looked like. You know, the, the idea that you don't know what your father looks like your entire life is something that's um, really profound, especially for a portraitist. Some of my earliest work coming after that trip was these kind of repetitive portraits of him over and over again, sort of like exercising that desire to scratch that itch. Um, I ended up selling that work off when I was a student, so I can't even get my hands on it or see what it looks like because it's just like sort of out there in the world somewhere. But it was a great um, it was a great uh, exercise. Do you look like him? Yeah, I mean, I, I remember the day that I saw his name on the door of the architecture department, uh, he wasn't actually in the office at the time. Uh, his assistant was. And that my story was believed immediately because of the way we resemble each other. I was, at that point, completely out of money and completely out of my depths. And I ended up being embraced by uh, his assistant and uh, slept at their place that night. Uh, and then later they drove me to where he was the following morning. And that's when we met. That African Hospitality.
1: Um, Is there anything else that you want to say?
0: I think that um, one of the things that my work straddles is this place where the religious and the queer kind of create this clusterfuck, this supernova. So much of what's going on in my work is this desire to deal with desire. And a physical desire? Sure. It's A about, material it's, desire? Well, people ask me about why you choose certain models. And uh, I always say you, there is no rule. There's no ground rules for it. You know it when you see it. There's a type of charisma, a type of state of grace that people occupy, and you respond to that. And it's not about a type of... It's not sexual desire so much as it is a kind of aesthetic desire. When you know that you have in your hands and in your life and in your... Potential, the ability to point to someone and have them on a museum wall several months from now. The, that, that, abil- that desire to, to see what you find to be beautiful actualized becomes a type of addictive uh, space to occupy. And it's just incredibly um, thrilling to be able to do that.
1: Yeah, it's always great to hang with Kehende because he's fun, he's brilliant, he's global. And as I said, his confidence is massive and infectious. Whenever we hang out, I always walk out of his apartment feeling bigger somehow. I hope he had that effect on you today. On this show, I always try to create conversations that will be valuable for you, not just entertaining. I want you to get something out of it. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Kande for his time. If you want to talk to me more about this show or anything else, I'm on Twitter at Torey and on Instagram at Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Chris Colbert, with help from Shelby Royston, and in association with Cadence 13 Studios. We're beaming to you from the amazing borough of Brooklyn, the baddest place in the world, and we'll be back next week with more knowledge from successful folks, because the man ain't shut us down yet. Join us next Wednesday when the legendary Spike Lee takes us inside his great new Netflix show, She's Gotta Have It, and inside... What it means to be a great director. What is the difference between being a good director and being a great director? To be a great director, in my opinion, you got to be a
0: great storyteller. Simple. If you ain't, I don't care how good it looks, whatever you're doing,
1: yeah, all right, it's cute, but... <laughs> you have to tell a good story. Great story. A great story. That's the core uh, of it. For me... That's next Wednesday on Tore Show.